All right, everybody, this is in Liberty and Health, and today I'm really, really looking forward to the show. I got one of my, uh, you know, a familiar guests to the show um, for everybody here, and I'm really, really excited to have this conversation. Um, his documentary that he's put out has gotten a lot of traction. I'm really, really excited to uh, talk to him all about that and uh, many, many other things. So um, make sure you go hit all the links below, follow Patrick everywhere, follow myself, and, you know, check all the great supplements from TigerFitness.com and get the world's best electrolytes from LMNT and Fox & Sons Cough. I won't keep you guys too long at this point. So let's run the intro and let's go. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty, physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> all right. Pat, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going, Kyle? Excellent. Um, you were shooting the shit a little bit before the show. Um, as always, it's good to talk to you and have you back on. Um, you just put out your Oppenheimer documentary, um, which has been doing really, really well. And in fact, so well that you were talking to somebody that I know that you've had quite a uh, admiration for, and that's uh, James Corbett. So uh, I guess uh, let's uh, start with a you know real quick brief introduction, because I see somebody said that this is the first time listen for them and uh, you know, kind of take it from where you want. Yeah, well, I'm so I'll just like I'll start with who I am. Basically, I, I'm a practicing attorney in Wisconsin, and I've been doing this liberty thing for seven years now since 2017, six years. And um, when I really when I started out, I really wanted to be doing long form documentary content like this documentary because uh, I came in. I was listening to a lot of James Corbett when I first kind of came into this world, and so. The Truth About Oppenheimer is part one of a documentary mini-series or a docu-series that I'm doing. And it really started a year and a half ago before I even knew that the Oppenheimer movie was coming out, but it's about the Manhattan Project. So I just jumped on kind of that interest around Oppenheimer. But a lot of people don't know, and I didn't know before a year and a half ago, that while the Manhattan Project was going on, and most of this happened after the atomic bombs were dropped, the Manhattan Project scientists were injecting American citizens with plutonium. And they did about 18 people that we know of that can be proven uh, by, by the documentary evidence. And so I made this documentary to see, you know, what's up with that and to tell people about it. Nice, man. Well, I'm sorry I missed a part of that. My computer really crashed as uh, you were going on there. Um, yeah, um, I, I watched the documentary, and I remember you were saying that you were going to start um, working on it like last year or something like that. Now, um, was this in response to the film, or was this always kind of something that you wanted to do? Yeah, well, it was. it was always something that I kind of wanted to do, like this form of content. Mm-hmm. right well you've also done a few other documentaries that uh seem to do pretty well as well but like this one seemed to really blow up and i know i've complimented you before for your work with uh the uh stain of the century the uyghur stuff and then i think you have one about um police brutality and also 
um, Why Johnny Can't Kill, I think. I haven't watched that one yet, but um, I know you and I have talked about it a little bit as well. I forgot about the police brutality one, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I had, you know, this time I have the benefit of a great producer, Mises Pieces, who who helps me out and does a lot of the yeoman's work behind this. And so having him, you know, kind of with me to make this content really took it to the next level in this one. And I think that the timing was just right too with the interest, but more so the fact that this is like, this is an, an it's an incredible fucking story. Like what the fuck, man? I, I mean, that was my first, that was my first reaction to learning this kind of stuff. I mean, I thought that the atomic bomb tests were supposed to be, you know, us, we're the U.S., we're the good guys, right. saving lives by vaporizing those people. And um, that's what it's all about. It's about saving lives and protecting the United States. Well, mm -hmm. wait a minute. What do you mean these people were, were injecting Americans with plutonium? Like, and what the fuck even is that, dude? Like, my first experience with plutonium was watching um, what, Back to the Future. Right. And um, like there's that part where I think it's plutonium where where Doc Brown, you know, they're talking about what's what is the thing that powers the the flux capacitor and like the well, we need plutonium. So I got to rip off the Libyans to get this plutonium. Um, but knowing that that is the thing that goes into the atomic bombs and we're basically it's one of the things that goes into the bomb and we're basically injecting people with that. Like, what's that all about? Right. Um, now, the one thing that um, kind of came to mind whenever we were, um, when I was watching the documentary, you brought up the experiments done in Nazi Germany and then Unit 731, which were, um, from what I understand, both done around the same time. I'm sorry about all the technical difficulties. It's, it's very unprofessional, but, you know, no, we're, no we're making do. Um, <laughs> I'm actually impressed you think... by your ability to switch from the computer to your phone <laughs> seamlessly while I'm monologuing. Uh, well, you know what? <laughs> well no no you you did a great job because i'd be a little bit nervous just monologuing on and on and on but it's, i'm i'm glad it seemed at least uh somewhat professional but um i read up a decent bit on like the uh experiments done in unit 731 and it's all i've kind of ran into the question of like were these experiments perhaps hyped up in like our culture to kind of make us fear imperial japan do you, do you get what i'm kind of getting at here versus like you don't hear about the stuff that they did at oppenheimer you know um the manhattan project because this is gonna make us look like the bad guys which it seems like back in world war ii there really weren't any good guys in this specific kind of situation but you know us kind of without giving people informed consent inject them with all this stuff and then making people sick as they were and then you know them dying as fast as they were i mean that's it's pretty horrific stuff yeah, it is. And I mean, I'm I'm not quite as familiar with uh, with the specifics of Unit 731. I mean, I'm completely open to the idea or the possibility that, yes, in, in all manner that the Nuremberg trial or excuse me, that the crimes of Nazi Germany in terms of the medical experimentation and the actual same thing going on at 731, I'm very open to the possibility or the probability that what was going on there was more brutal in terms of evil. Um, that I don't think that that is necessarily fatal to the kind of point that I'm trying to make. Sure. But at the, at the same time, I'm very also open to the possibility that it might be exaggerated in some way, shape, or form. I mean, right. 
the sacred cow of, I mean, Americans and the American mythology is that we confronted a unique evil in World War II and that we were the good guys and we're doing everything that we were supposed to do and everything that we did was justified. Firebombing Dresden, firebombing, you know, German cities, firebombing, and then nuclear bombing Japan, killing all these civilians and basically waging total war against Germany. And in fact, I mean, too, I shouldn't downgrade what Stalin did and the Russians did at the time, too, as they swept through Eastern Europe on their way back. Um, but I, I just think that it's important for Americans to know, especially in, too, because the the way that the Manhattan Project hurt American citizens was also unique because it's it, it can't be measured. It's not as overt. It's more passive. Right. And where you have, you know, maybe a Nazi scientist that's dunking twins in freezing cold water for a long period of time, that has a direct victim and it shocks the conscience in a way, but it's not the same as, you know, spreading radiation all across the continental United States and affecting child mortality rates for the next few years. I mean, that is a type of hidden harm, but it's just as horrific. Right. And, and this kind of also relates to when we talk about some of the stuff that was done over the last three years, where you can't really pinpoint any one thing specifically. And you see a lot of people doing this, but like, um, kind of to your point, when you think about Nazi Germany or you think about Unit 731, where they were doing like vivisections on people, where they were, you know, seeing how long they could run with organs out of their body and splaying people alive. Um, that's much more like, this is going to affect people immediately and you could see what's going on right in front of your face. But like you said, if you're exposing people to radiation and controlled amounts, um, you know, how much can people tolerate? And then, you know, you're going to have your outliers of people who could probably tolerate a lot of it and would never even know. And then you're probably gonna have people that are going to be, you know, in the other camp of they get a little bit and then it just completely screws them up for the rest of their lives. So I think this kind of works in the U.S.'s benefit because, you know, they can rely on ambiguity in, you know, the overall results of how people kind of fared with it versus, you know, Nazi Germany or Japan, where, you know, it's, right in your face like these people are being harmed right away and i i do i mean of course as as a trial attorney doing criminal law criminal defense mens rea it does matter i mean it, it doesn't in a sense and this is taken to an account and mens rea being the state of mind that someone has when they commit a crime right. the criminal mind mm -hmm. and the criminal intent and intent being a very big factor of that but I, I mean, at the very least, you could have, well, maybe in Unit 731, they were acting with with a guilty mens re, like a, a depraved mind of mm -hmm. premeditation. All of these states of mind that the criminal law seeks to punish the most, whereas with the United States, I mean, you, in some small way, it might matter if they were acting with wanton disregard for human life as opposed to... Yeah premeditated, intentionally inflicting harm. Although, I mean, in the plutonium injection experiments, some of them did intentionally intent, I mean, to create a harm. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to touch too on informed consent specifically, but not right sure. now. Okay. So remind me later. But yeah, I think and so, but when it comes when it comes in though, is these people knew they were creating a weapon of mass destruction. 
they had to have some kind of understanding of what the legacy of creating that weapon would be. Mm-hmm. And they had to have some kind of knowledge or foreseeability that the United States would use the weapon. And I don't know, maybe they didn't know that the U.S. would use it to destroy uh, a metro, you know, a metropolitan area with civilians in it. Maybe they thought it would be a demonstration of force. But at the same time, you have Oppenheimer talking about, well, we need to create a weapon of mass destruction. It could be radioactive, radiological weapons. And the intended purpose of this would be to kill hundreds of thousands of people. That's from his letter saying, well, maybe we could use radiation to kill hundreds of thousands of people. So I don't know. It's it's difficult to determine what their state of mind was when they went through this. But I will say that it's more complicated than just saying Oppenheimer bad, which I right. don't do. Yeah, well, one thing that I've always admired about you is that, um, you know, being that you are a lawyer, you are very well-reasoned and patient and also understanding of nuance in situations such as this. Um, of course. Well, it also seemed like Oppenheimer was kind of, a, I don't want to say a quack, but like, he had a lot of issues throughout um, his life, particularly in his college years, um, as you laid out in the documentary. So um, why don't we kind of lay out what his childhood and maybe like into his adult years were like, because when he developed some of these or when he was doing some of these experiments, he was like our age, right? Because I'm 28 and you're 29, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So let's go ahead and kind of lay out what his life was like and kind of how he got to where he was. Well, he was, I think I remember that he was born in New England and that his parents were both wealthy. Um, His dad was some kind of a business magnate. I think they were in manufacturing, but they were well-to-do. They they probably were new money or something like that as opposed Mm -hmm. to old money. But he, I focused primarily on his, his years in college uh, because he went to, you know, prestigious schools. He went to Harvard. He did that kind of thing. And, once he he got there, I mean, it's alluded to in the, the Christopher Nolan film, it's alluded to the fact that he was a bit of a womanizer, which is just kind of funny because he he had this sexual fixation growing up where he wanted a girlfriend and a girl companion and was probably sexually frustrated. Maybe he was a virgin. I don't know. And I don't say that as a knock. Like, I completely understand that young men get kind of rambunctious when they, you know, want to be with a woman and can't. Um, so... He, in in his college years, he goes to Cambridge. I don't know if that was his first time being away from his parents or his, well, probably his first time being out of the country and for a prolonged period of time. And he kind of had this mental collapse in his first semester at Cambridge in his graduate study to the point where he was muttering to himself, talking to himself constantly and at the the university and the laboratory, he would go into these convulsions. He would fall to the floor and he really was in these hysterics. Mm -hmm. And it kind of culminated with him obtaining cyanide from a university laboratory and poisoning an apple with it and giving it to a supervising professor, which is in the film um, to Christopher Nolan's credit. And, but the fallout from that, I don't know if it's in the film or not, essentially where he is, put on academic probation, criminal charges are recommended, but then his wealthy parents fly in. And at least in the film, it said that he 
stopped all of this before the he went and grabbed the apple from his professor's desk because he changed his mind. And it sounded like maybe he turned himself in or something like that. So, but the follow-up being that he was put on academic probation, he had regular psyche valves. There were um, psychotherapists who said, diagnosed him with profound schizophrenia. That's a quote, profound schizophrenia, that psychoanalysis would not benefit or psychotherapy wouldn't benefit. And so he, for the, for the winter term, his parents take him to Paris where he is, um, they just needed to take him out of that environment. And while he's there, his former classmate from Harvard, Francis Ferguson, who ended up being a famous academic in his own right, visits him, tells Oppenheimer, you know, among their visiting, oh, I, I got this girlfriend. And apparently that throws Oppenheimer into some kind of a rage. And they're in his hotel room in, in Paris, and Oppenheimer grabs a trunk strap and starts strangling Ferguson from, from behind with it. And I don't know how long that lasted, what the circumstances were, but he didn't end up killing him. And Ferguson knew that he was pretty messed up at the time and had been there to give him emotional support in the first place. So there was another instance where Oppenheimer had confessed to Ferguson that he saw a couple kissing on the train. And after the, the man, the male in the couple had left the carriage, uh, Oppenheimer went up and kissed the woman and immediately like fell to his knees begging for her forgiveness for doing that but then after the couple leaves the train they're going on to a lower station and apparently oppenheimer told ferguson that he grabbed a suitcase and tried to drop it on the woman's head from a raised level so i would consider that to be attempted murder or at least attempted grievous bodily harm or something like that mm -hmm. but kai bird the documentarian doesn't believe that that event actually took place he thought that Oppenheimer just made it up and told Ferguson that, which I, I don't know, whatever. I don't know what's, I guess, attempting murder is probably worse, but it's still pretty weird and kind of fucked up that you would lie about that, you know, just make it yeah. up. Or something, but Right. Now, do you think it would be completely off the reservation for him to lie about something like that? Because by the way it sounds, it seems like he had some kind of like pathologic personality, pathological personality that is, as in like, um, he had legitimate problems that he needed help. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, he was, a he was, <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, essentially I, I don't think it's beyond the pale for him to have made that up. I mean, if he was mm -hmm. a profound schizophrenic, maybe he just imagined the whole thing. I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a genius. I mean, yeah. I, I knock him a bit, but he clearly was a genius. All right. Yeah. Um, now, what were his involvements kind of in the Manhattan or uh, I shouldn't say in the Manhattan project, but like kind of moving forward there because it, he was supposed to be suspended from college. But then, like you said, his parents kind of came in and washed that all away. And then um, what kind of happened from there? Yeah. So obviously he, he finished, he graduated and he must have pulled himself together in, in some respects because he graduates mm -hmm. and becomes a successful um, physicist. I think mm -hmm. he was a physicist. But he, he's hired on at Berkeley. And at the time, there was this two brothers named John and Ernest Lawrence. And they invented this machine called the cyclotron. And I'm not any kind of physicist or anything like that. But my rough understanding is that it's a, it's a particle accelerator. So 
they would spin up these particles really, really fast, and they would create radioisotopes from them. Mm-hmm. Now, don't ask me what that means. It's something to do with, you know, radioactivity. So I, I don't know if it has <laughs> to do with the number of electrons that are... Mm-hmm. I was really bad in chemistry, but if it's the number of electrons that are on a certain element or, or a, um, you know, with the what, what that is, the thing, an atom... There's a number of you know electrons that circle around an atom, and I think that the cyclotron has something to do with shooting them off or accelerating them so fast to create isotopes, which I think mm-hmm. is changing the number of electrons on an atom. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes there, and at the time, Berkeley, like I said, is this hotbed for cutting-edge science having to do with the cyclotron. And there was a great deal of work and to do at the same time about this cutting edge science and trying to unlock biomedical applications for this cyclotron and for radiation in general, just discovering it because it was new. I mean, you've heard about Curie's uh, x-rays and things like that, but also um, going into this field of creating radioactive materials was brand new. And so you have a lot of people trying to do things that are edgy to push the envelope to make a discovery, but also to get um, funding and and open those doors to get notoriety and funding. So at the same time, you have a lot of scientists at Berkeley who would later end up in the Manhattan Project itself. And so Oppenheimer is one of those people. And I think it was the selection of Oppenheimer, but also what they were doing at Berkeley. But his selection led to him picking a lot of scientists that were from Berkeley because that's where he worked. Um, Mm. And so but I think Oppenheimer himself was selected by uh, Lieutenant General Leslie Groves, who was tasked with creating the Manhattan Project and assembling the team because of his qualities as being this uncanny uh, having an uncanny ability to inspire people and manage these pro these projects. Mm-hmm. Now let's make it a little bit meta, but kind of to that idea, I, I almost wonder like if it was pure, I don't say pure evil, but bad intentions and like their intentions absolutely were to harm people with the knowledge that that is going to like, that they want that to happen or if it's more of like we think we have to do this for the greater good and if they thought oppenheimer like with his pathological personality if they thought that he would kind of be like a you know what do i want to say like a means just or ends justifying the means so like you have this pathological person with somebody who kind of is looking for a way to you know bend the rules a little bit for what they may see as the greater good but they see someone like him and say well this is kind of a necessary cog in this wheel to kind of get to the ending which is you know we nuke nagasaki in japan i think that of course it's very hard to tell and Mm -hmm. um we, we don't really know because all these people are dead now and the context clues are, I mean, the context clues are there. Yeah. Some of the evidence is there where we can speculate, do some educated uh, speculation. But I think at the time it was very pervasive across the country that we, that people wanted to step in and help. I mean, when even, even before the draft was instituted, you had, young men of all stripes rushing to the recruitment office and some being so upset when they were denied to serve 
uh, that they killed themselves. And so to keep in mind that you're, you're in a very different place of patriotism than I think we are now, just in terms of what the zeitgeist was at the time and what the expectations were of national service. Mm -hmm. So you had a lot of young men who maybe didn't qualify for service for some reason or, or another, or they thought, well, you know, I'm a lab geek. I'm, I'm, you know, going to this prestigious university to get an advanced degree. Well, what do people like me need, or excuse me, what, what does the country need from people like me? Because I'm worth much more to the war effort as a scientist creating destructive technology than I am as a grunt on the ground with, you know, with an M1 carbine or something mm -hmm. like that. So I think that a lot of these young men had ideas for serving the war effort. And I think that they lent their hand or ended up getting an opportunity as a young person to head this project when so many scientists were already taken up with the war effort itself. Um, and one, one reason why I don't think that Hempel, like specifically that some of these young scientists were bloodthirsty monsters is because there was an instance where um, Don Mastic, he was a, he was a young scientist tasked with handling the plutonium at Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. He broke a vial of plutonium on accident. And at the time, like the world's supply of plutonium could fit like on the head of a pin. So it's these, know. these vials are just tiny, tiny little things. So he broke it and he like, I don't know, a substantial portion of all of the plutonium in the, that existed at the time shot through his mouth. And basically, he, I mean, he didn't really understand. Maybe he had some kind of understanding of how like dangerous a situation that was for him. So he he walks on over to Lewis Hempelman's office, who's the one of the guys who's responsible for injecting the plutonium and starting that program. He's the medical director at the Los Alamos facility. And this Don Mastic comes in and says, uh, I just broke this vial of plutonium and it's all in my mouth now. What do I do? <laughs> and Hempelman freaks out because he, I mean, he freaks out for several reasons. Like he's afraid of what's going to happen to this guy. He's afraid that, you know, all the plutonium that made, that took months and months of really expensive work to create is now lost in this person. So he, I think he called up Leslie Groves at the, at the Pentagon and was panicking. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that gives you some idea of what the culture was at the time and what their ideas or, you know, what, what their temperament was like. So we're not talking about per se, like a blood soaked consciousness monster here. Right. I think it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, I I think I would agree with that. Um, and, and I real quick, uh, Jay Forte, if the student invokes the name of Raimondo, I will trust your judgment. Um, please do and verify with Pat. Um, I, I don't think you'll be upset at all. Um, we, can talk about, we can talk about Justin <laughs> later, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, uh, as as I said earlier, um, your work's absolutely fantastic, and um, it, it's definitely informed me on a lot of the stuff that I talk about today. But um, going back to like Unit Seven. 31 and kind of like the zeitgeist i feel like this is something more to the human condition that like people of our stripe tend to discount that like 
in Unit 731, a lot of the doctors that were going to do some of these wicked experiments were just kind of kids like fresh out of college. And you have to imagine in the World War II area, I mean, I'm sure, or era, there's probably a lot of like patriotism throughout all the countries throughout the world because, you know, you're in a war. So, you know, you feel like your side has to win. So whenever you're being told that, hey, you can help the war effort by, you know, you're going to go do these experiments to help the war. Well, you don't think that it's going to be the Manhattan Project. You don't think it's going to be Unit 731. Um, so you willingly go and sign up. And then whenever you get there, it's probably not like right away that you're doing horrific things, but it's probably just a little bit more than you're comfortable with. And just you keep pushing a little bit more and more and more. Um, that would be kind of how I imagine it. But I think, once again, you would probably have a better read of that. Yeah. And I think that when you, there, there's a lot to be said about group psychology and group dynamics. And I think when, when you're in a situation where you're dehumanizing the enemy and where people are around you, there's an authority figure that is telling you to do that thing. And when you're, when you're in a, in a place where individuality is discouraged, like the military, you you're put into that situation where um, you create excuses or you get into the group dynamic where you push the envelope a little further and a little further. I mean, there's several psychological experiments that are very famous that have underscored this this dynamic and in, in what happens. Uh, you know, one of them being the Stanford Prison Experiment that had to Just be called off mm -hmm. because things. There's a great movie about it that everyone should watch. I can't remember what it's called, but but if you Google it, I'm sure you'll find the movie. Um, but things. I mean, some people, for those who aren't familiar, it was a, a prison uh, an experiment that was ethnic, ethically questionable that happened at Stanford where a bunch of, during the summer, a bunch of, I think, graduate or undergraduate students were um, taken into this experiment where they created a prison in the psychology department at Stanford. And they took some people randomly, assigned them jobs as either a guard or a prisoner. And very soon after that, you had the prison, the prison guards and prisoners basically coming at odds where the prison guards were starting to basically torture the prisoners and the prisoners were doing what they could to push back against it. Uh, but I think the point of that and the lesson of it is that you can take anyone and put them in that situation and you will make them like the result will be that they commit war, you know, crimes against humanity, essentially. Yeah, the other uh, experiment that I'm thinking of, it, I think it was called the Stanley Milgram experiment. Yeah. And that was where um, they had told where I think it was a majority of participants would actually administer a lethal dose, like a lethal shock to somebody if they were just told like the experiment must go on. There was no compulsion, you know, in they didn't know that they could leave at any time, but there was no punishment. They were just told they couldn't leave. That was it. No force, yeah. no nothing else. And people would administer lethal doses to people of um, like electric shocks. Um, that was uh, something very, very telling. And it's also uh, kind of reminds me of a book that I talk about a lot, but Ordinary Men, where it kind of details out how average people will go to do heinous things. And the thing I always love about this specific topic is that it, it's more about like you and me than it is about them, right? Because this tells you about your own psychology and what you will do in situations of desperation. It's why I, I kind of get annoyed when people talk about like you see the craziest woke person on Twitter and like what nobody will ever say is that that would be 
any one of us, given the right circumstances, let's say we don't have food or water, or we felt that a certain cause was so vital to us that we had to, you know, make it known, that would be any single person on the internet, given the right circumstances. And I think a lot of people fail to recognize that. Yeah. And, and one important thing that dovetails with this about the Milgram experiment is that the subjects were being told to administer the lethal dose by a person of perceived authority. And in that experiment, that person of perceived authority was a doctor or at least a person wearing a white lab coat. So you would think, identify them as a doctor or right. like you said, an authority. Yeah, but I, I think it, and, and I think it's especially relevant in the context of these plutonium injection experiments you know, when when you're told by your supervisors, your superiors that, hey, we're going to start this human experiment where you know, we're going to send you this like the most radioactive radioactive element known to humankind to this point, and you're going to inject it in this person and just just to see what happens. I mean, so <clears throat> yeah, it's it's um, it's just it's wild, man. It's the whole thing is just wild, and you wonder how people don't know about this, but also how it happened and what they were thinking. Yeah, it's, it is kind of insane to think about that. Literally the U S vaporized about a quarter of a million people at one point, like that is no small feat. And the narrative around that, which I, I like, I'll be the first to admit, I'm not a history buff. I'm, pretty ignorant of a lot of things historical i defer to guys like you and you know whoever else that knows way more about this stuff whenever it comes to this kind of conversation but like you know the idea that japan was going to go take over the world if they didn't stop but yet they were they said that they would surrender but then we ended up nuking them anyways and uh one thing that our mutual friend dave the camp brought up on his show was <laughs> they're not airing oppenheimer over in japan well <laughs> gee i yeah. wonder why yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, the thing that I point to about the necessity of the, the bombings was that the United States after the war conducted a strategic bombing review. And I, I think, I don't know if this was done congressionally or if it was a Pentagon review, but through, through interviewing Japanese officials and interviewing American officials, doing a thorough investigation they came to the conclusion that if the bombings had never happened and if no invasion had occurred or even been planned or threatened, Japan still would have surrendered by that fall, by the fall of 1945. Wow. So I think that should put it to bed. I mean, aside from all these people that Scott Horton has compiled, U.S. officials mm -hmm. quoting, saying that, well, this was not necessary. You know, I think it should put it to bed in, in just common sense, too. I mean, for Christ's sake, Japan is an island. They had just, you know, they had been at war. They had just, I think, be before World War II, they had just fought a war against China and Manchuria. And before that, they had fought a war against Russia. And uh, maybe I, I hope I'm getting that right. But, I mean, they had been, even before they started, attacking the united states i think they were in trouble with with fossil fuels and oil to to run their military with so after you know fighting the united states for three years of brutal warfare i mean losing hundreds of thousands of soldiers and and manpower and ships 
their Navy being decimated. I don't think that it would have been necessary to invade the island at all. I mean, it's an island, just blockade it. You can prevent the Russians from invading the island too, if that's the reason why you give. Prevent them from invading it just by circling your ships around it. I mean, it's an island. I, I don't know what else to say. What are, I mean, you could, a more humanitarian way of doing things would just be to block off military supplies, but let them eat. I mean, I, that's just my thought. Yeah, it, I mean, it's really indicative of U.S. foreign policy um, as a whole that it, it, there's never any diplomacy, and especially now under Joe Biden, there's just never any conversation of like, okay, well, how can we de-escalate, or how can there be like a win-win negotiation mm. where um, it's just escalate sanction? You know, there's no, like I said, no talks on the table, and we're seeing this a lot now with Russia and China, where we're not really giving them a choice to back out. And, you know, it's just constantly ramping up tension slowly but surely. In fact, uh, I, I think, you know, just as well as I do this past week, um, I think Biden just banned it, um, some investments from um, American companies going over to China, which it's like, I mean, if you're concerned about them committing economic espionage, which is what we keep being told, um then why can't these companies just find out for themselves? Like, and we know that if you know their investments go south, the U.S. is going to bail them out anyway. So what's the matter? Yeah, yeah, and and I think that at, as an example, I might have a treat for your viewers and listeners if you just fill like three or four seconds of airtime. Is mm -hmm. that all right? I'm just going to grab something quick. You know, go ahead. Uh, we will go through chats. Don't pull me up, Jay Forte. There you go. <laughs> Kevin, listen to his AirPod. I don't know if Ben's still here. Ben, I hope you are not getting yelled at. Um, if you go to Pat's channel, he did do a, I think, like two hour podcast on Project Bluebeam. So there is uh, quite a bit from Pat in that respect. And I think he also talked to Adam Fitzgerald about that. Um, we can talk about Project Bluebeam. I just wanted to show your listeners. I have mm -hmm. examples, World War II examples of Japanese firearms here. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the differences towards the end of the war, they were producing uh, substandard weapons. They're called mm -hmm. last ditch rifles, and this is a right. this is a Type thirty eight Arisaka, but this is a this is a carbine, and it's example of like the superior craftsmanship, like earlier mm -hmm. on in the war. So you can see here the nice bolt handle here. It's kind of, it's rounded like this. And here, this is the safety switch, but you can see it's dimpled like that. It has texturing on it. Yeah. Um, and the the butt plate is, is steel or it's made out of metal. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of the war, you can see the change in in the 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 quality of the machining of the bolt. Oh my! So yeah. they had trimmed it down like that. This um, is not textured anymore. I don't. Yeah. You can kind of see it there. Yeah. There's no texturing on it. This is wooden. Oh, I don't man. even know what the point of having this on was per se to protect mm. the butt of the rifle. Right. Um, you can see that the. The rear sight here is different. There's no aircraft aviation, um, you know, nothing like that. It's more rudimentary. And there is no upper handguard on the rifle either. 
So they are doing everything that they can. And if you see here, this uh, the front band on it was welded. Oh uh, yeah, that's a shitty weld too. It's funny. Uh, my I had a, a performance instructor in college, and he always told me that if you needed a grinder for your welds, then you're not a good welder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you can and kind of you can see that the the stock is more rough too. Yeah. Um. So I just think it's it's really interesting. One thing just to see it for yourself, what the actual difference is between the quality. Um, yeah, so, so do you have any, like, do you know when, how long apart those were from being produced? Like that first one that you showed is actually like really, really nice looking. Like you could tell that someone took pride in what they were doing as to where that one that you have right now, they kind of were just like, let's get the single fuck out of here. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm. No, I, I think a lot of the last ditch ones I'd have to brief up on 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 that, but I think a lot of them were in 1944 and 1945. Okay, gotcha. So, but that kind of puts another nail in the coffin of the idea that they were going to go taking over the world because if they're making rifles literally called last ditch and they're yeah. completely abandoning quality, then do you really think they have aspirations beyond their own border? Yeah, I mean, right. yeah, it's tremendous. But it's always interesting to see it firsthand like that. I mean, so to to believe that, I don't know, just the belief that they could have done anything militarily after that, after expending so many lives. And I mean, they were also firebombing the cities too, which I'm against, but right. yeah, anyways. So, but I can certainly see if I was if I was a Marine and I had just fought through the Pacific and I had fought on Okinawa and seen kind of the the zealous nature of of the defense, I would probably feel the same way as most World War II vets do. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. When you see people probably getting slaughtered like that, it's probably hard to say, like, ah, you know, we should just call it off now like people probably want revenge i mean we see that in like our political discourse at large but i think it's just largely comes out of people's like tribal nature you know it's my team so you know if anything that transgresses against my team you know we have to punish whoever did that and i'm sure that's probably the way that like a lot of people feels that they felt you know that their brothers and sisters who were fighting well brothers <laughs> mainly uh fighting over in japan needed to be you know accounted for and you know justice need to be served i think that's kind of the narrative that they probably tell themselves for that yeah yeah um so i had uh robert sloan and joseph hamilton written down oh look who dropped in or mutual friend uh good evening gentlemen during the u.s occupation of japan members of unit 731 and the members of the other units were allowed to go free due to the fact that they received secret funding from the u.s government i actually did not know that um Seems that's like fascinating i need to do another documentary <laughs> oh you know what that would be awesome um i i have a book on unit 731 i haven't read it yet but um, it's always been such a fascinating topic to me because, you know, to think of the gruesome experiments that they did, but to also kind of learn from that, like, uh, it, it's kind of like when people tweak about the stuff that, you know, um, that certain Austrian painter from the 40s may have uh, done in World War II. <laughs> um, 
we should definitely kind of learn what we can from that because you know the, the knowledge is there at this point not to say that we should repeat that but you know learn everything you can from mistakes of the past yeah certainly and it, it it's hard because you know history began yesterday and <laughs> for most uh, yeah so it makes it difficult to kind of impress that but moreover you know unless it's presented properly history is boring you know and i i get that yeah you really got to go out of your way to dig for a lot of this stuff so um before uh, I read Adam's chat there, um, Robert Stone and Joseph Hamilton, who were these two? I I've watched documentary quite a few times, but uh, uh, for the audience who may not know. Yeah, so Robert Stone and Joseph Hamilton, they were both uh, medical doctors that were doing research at Berkeley. And early in the 30s, they had kind of, they were inspired by uh, Joseph and Ernest uh, Lawrence. Ernest Lawrence. I, I forget their names. I mix them, their first names, but the Lawrence brothers who invented the cyclotron and they were ones, they were kind of the ones that were trying the hardest to develop biomedical applications for the cyclotrons and this radioactive technology. Mm. And so in the thirties, you have them doing these experiments. And I put that of human tracer experiments. They were called because we want to track the dispersal of radiation through the human body and and see there was a lot of hope that radio radiation might be like a magic bullet where we could direct it to enter the body and go and eliminate certain cells and then leave the body however of course radio radiation doesn't really work that way but what they would do is they would have people drink radioactive sodium and they would trace its progress through the human body. So they would um, <clears throat> create a project where there's a lead-lined box and the doctor would put his hand in the lead-lined box and he would drink radio. They did this, they experimented on people too, like volunteers, mm -hmm. even though they really couldn't tell them what the risks of the study were because it wasn't very well known at the time. Mm -hmm. um, what the long-term effects would be especially but they had them drink radioactive sodium and they put the hand in a lead line box with a geiger counter and they counted how long it would take for the geiger counter to light up and how much it lit up when it when it did um, so there was that experiment that they did and it was called in some ways called the stunt by their colleagues uh, by some of their colleagues later on <clears throat> robert stone uh, would devise an experiment where he took cancer patients from the visible tumor clinic um, at the University of San Francisco. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Francisco Medical Hospital, and he would irradiate their tumors, uh, which in some ways, I mean, hindsight being what it is, we do know that radiation is the primary modality for treating cancer, right? So I guess it had to start somewhere, but it just seems like um, there was no discussion of any kind of informed consent or how these people were selected or 
if they were made aware of the risks of the procedure or if they were made aware of the unknown quality of the risks of the procedure. Uh, so half within six months, half of the 68 test subjects died. And we can't say that they were all killed by Robert Stone because remember, they all had cancer. Some of it was, you know, metastasized or had, you know, big uh, visible tumors on them. Yeah. But Stone himself in his research papers admitted that, you know, several, several of the people, maybe 12 or 13, were so ill to begin with that they probably shouldn't have been treated. He also complained about their lodgings, the treatment they were receiving wherever they were situated, which kind of begs the question of like, okay, well, if you knew that they were in a place where they couldn't be taken care of with the, because of the treatment you were about to give to them, why would you put them through this? Uh, but other people died too because they, they swelled up so much that they couldn't eat and they died because they, you know, died of dehydration or they couldn't, you know, they starved to death. And um, some of them also or developed these like hideous skin conditions and, and, and things like that. One, somebody likened them to metal plates, um, to armored plates on their body. So, and then after 1943, Robert Stone was involved in another experiment that I didn't talk about in the documentary where he irradiated more people. And the, I just read about the details of it yesterday and they're not entirely clear enough that I, you know, could, could recount them word for word, but right. I think it involved irradiating like patients in a nursing home. And so it's, it's just, a lot of it is kind of grotesque sounding and his, his experimentation was later condemned by the atomic energy commission. So, I mean, take it for what it is, but he ended up being the head of the Met lab, the Chicago Met lab, which was part of the, the Manhattan project. Or, or working there at least and being involved in these plutonium injection experiments. So it's, um, and, and Joseph Hamilton, you know, was also involved with, with these experiments and he was known around the Berkeley campus for being someone who was brilliant, but was also like just completely disregarded lab safety and would do all these crazy things for, I don't know if it was for clout or for attention or what was it like he would drink radioactive iodine in front of his classes and he would run through the cyclotron facility without any uh, protective gear or equipment. And it actually killed him. He, he died in the fifties, I think because he was just so flagrant about safety protocols. So those are those two guys. He'd kind of be the dude at, uh, you know, probably my shop that would get his hand crushed by a road or something like that. Yeah, I think, right. You know, yeah. <laughs> we all do stupid stuff, but, uh, you know, sometimes you got to figure out when and uh, when not to uh, be a completely total idiot. Um, so you wanted to touch on informed consent. Um, do you want to hit on that now? Yeah. So <clears throat> informed consent is actually might not have been the standard at the time the legal standard in fact it wasn't in terms of like the banner case on this is called canterbury versus spence um and so it's a case that really kind of defined what a patient needs to know before they can consent to a surgery or some procedure or operation or experiment mm -hmm. 
I think that just because, I mean, it, it does affect how we judge their actions at the time in terms of legal, speaking mm -hmm. legally. I don't think that it, I don't think that it changes the fact that what they did was wrong because they were doctors and the Hippocratic oath is to do no, no harm. So I, and I do think that I, I know for a fact that there was some approbation about the, the Nuremberg trials and, and exactly what they were charging these Nazi doctors with doing. Mm -hmm. So I think it was, um, I'd like to spend a little bit of time in part two talking about what informed consent is and why it's important. But the it's important to understand that informed consent is kind of a shifting fluid thing. So it depends on how you define informed consent. Is informed consent used to be, at least in Wisconsin, it used to be what would a reasonable patient expect to be told about a procedure before they consent to it? But then you get the legislature involved and then they say, OK, well, that's not going to be the standard anymore. Now the standard is, is what would a reasonable doctor think that it was important to tell a patient before a procedure? And those are two very different things. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's not even as simple as in, in for, for the purposes of making a documentary. I mean, you want to make something that's entertaining and informative and you don't exactly have a lot of time to go into this type of nuance so you right. just say well they didn't have informed consent right mm -hmm. and that's true right and and maybe i'll i'll add in some more of the context later mm -hmm. yeah yeah that is really interesting because like when you go to a restaurant it, it's not even necessarily like you have informed consent but i mean like you know you assume it's kind of on good faith that the your the person who's preparing your food is going to prepare it in a safe manner, right? And overwhelmingly, that's the case, right? Right. But there still is the off chance that you maybe get something that's prepared wrong, and then you get sick, or you know, even like my wife's case, she has a, a gluten allergy. If they cross contaminate something, then she could be sick because of that. But like you know, they have to sometimes disclose that, and sometimes they may not. But you know, it. it it's kind of funny that you said it's almost like a shifting dynamic because it kind of is in a way. Yeah, it is. I mean, in fact, the standard, like the stand, the the duty. I mean, this is going back to just a simple negligence case, like from law school. But the they call it the the reasonable, the reasonably prudent person standard. It's because we can't sit here and dictate, and we don't want to stand here and dictate what how people should behave in every act that they do. Because you and I are negligent every single day, whether Absolutely. we are driving too fast or you know we look at our phone when we shouldn't be, uh, or we don't hold the door open for somebody when we should, or I, I don't know, you take someone into your home and there's a defect with your house or something like that. Mm. Um, that's a little more complicated, but you get the idea. When when we're judging people's behavior for the purposes of lawsuits, we try to impose a duty on people to act reasonably under the circumstances. Right. And we can't sit there and write a list as to what's proper. That always falls on the, on the jury. Mm -hmm. You know, was this person acting reasonably in that position at the, at the, at a given time? And that's the most just way to do it. 
Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Um, so I, I guess one thing that I wanted to pivot over to is the relevance of Oppenheimer and kind of what your documentary talks about in today, because um, the one thing that I think you touched on a little bit at the very, very end of the documentary was how close we are to nuclear war today. And that's not to say that, you know, the nukes are going to start flying tomorrow, but, um, you know, as you and I have talked about extensively on both our shows and together, um, the likelihood of world war three is there and it is with you know russia and china and to a lesser degree iran um was that a big inspiration for you when kind of making this and um you know thoughts on that yeah primarily when i started making the documentary i was i was trying to hit at that informed consent angle mm -hmm. um to say that well, the government right now is taking, telling us that we all need to take this experimental medical treatment and we should just all trust the science and trust the experts they put in front of us because the experts would never lie or do anything nefarious mm. to us. Yeah. Um, and, and that was my whole point. Now, by the time I actually got done with it, that whole moment had passed trying mm. to make that point because now, like, well, it's still an issue. It's not in the popular mind right now. Right. Um, and I was lucky because this Oppenheimer sh movie was coming out and I hit up Mises pieces and I said, Hey, you know, that script that I said, um, I wanted to finish six months ago. Well, I'm going to finish it now and maybe we can get this thing out in time for the movie to drop. Uh, that's what happened. And yeah, I, it, it was just. In, in the popular this popular moment right now, I think what I want people to know is that having nuclear weapons around is, sure, you can say all day long it's about protecting us and about being safe and preventing deaths and that we haven't had another world war since the nuclear threat has existed. But at the very start of this, the Manhattan Project didn't care about human lives about american lives per se right. because if they did they wouldn't have used us as guinea pigs and they wouldn't have mm -hmm. i think dangerously and with with wanton disregard for human life irradiated mm -hmm. an entire state and indeed put the entire human race at risk because there's right. that part in the film that says well, there's a small chance that we might ignite the atmosphere on fire and destroy all human life as we know it, but it's a small chance. Punk. They press the button anyways. Mm -hmm. So I just think that, you know, who gives them the right to play with humanity like that? Right. And they shouldn't have. So in one of the chilling, one of the most chilling things about the plutonium injection experiments is that in the record, they in their memos they called the subjects hp number one or number mm -hmm. two or number three and hum hp stands for human product mm -hmm. and so at the end of the day it's important to know that at least to the people who are making these weapons americans are not something to be cherished and protected they are at the end of the day human product yeah, that's insane. And to bring it back to Unit 731 again, it's funny that with these kind of projects where they do horrendous things to other people, um, they considered 
I think the word in Japanese was Maruta, which stood for logs. And that's what they considered all the experiment, um, you know, all the people that they were um, experimenting with. And then obviously in Nazi Germany, they had considered all of the the Jews and the people they were um, imprisoning, they considered them rats as well. So it's just interesting to kind of see how like these experiments, they all almost fit a script, if you follow what I'm saying, like dehumanized people have a you know a group of people that are doing something to another group of people that are dehumanized and see the results from there and you know kind of carry on it's just really interesting that you see across all cultures across the world they follow a similar pattern yeah and i i think that's human psychology i mean it, how do you get people to to uh you mentioned why can't Johnny kill, which was maybe I think the last documentary piece that I did before this talking about how the U S military realized that in any given engagement with the enemy, that only 20% of the soldiers were actually firing their weapons in combat. Mm -hmm. And of course that freaked the military out and they decided to embark upon this campaign to condition the soldiers to pull the trigger. And mm -hmm. they used, psychology to do that um so they condition them to perform under that environment in a variety of ways by doing reflexive fire training which was basically training the mind that when a target presents itself you pull the trigger and they did like pavlovian or skinnerian operant conditioning to make sure that that happens but there's also the dehumanization that occurs in boot camp i mean i've had marines on this show to tell me that even though the Marine Corps says, well, we shouldn't sing chants about, you know, napalm sticking to kids and bayonetting babies, that stuff still happens, you know, at Paris Island. And I think it's San Diego's the other um, Marine Corps base. So the training facility. So um, it's that that dehumanization, uh, dehumanization part is so important that and the proof is in the pudding that the U.S. military does that. And that's how they get soldiers to perform. And it, it, yeah, it's, it's just universal. And they do that for a reason. And I think the reason is, is that uh, human beings naturally don't want to kill each other. I don't know if that's an evolutionary thing or if it's some kind of spiritual thing. But I, you would think that from a Darwinist point of view, preserving the human species would be important because in the natural world, you, you have when two bucks in the woods over here, when they are fighting each other, they there comes to be a point where one buck is defeated and yields. And instead of goring the other deer, the winner will just leave him alone because right. he's defeated. Well, why is that? Well, we don't want to, you know, eliminate our own species because we need them, you know, Predators will do that or disease will do that. They can go on and they can mate with another deer. That's fine. But I'm going to preserve, you know, secure my does. I don't care where he goes. He's defeated. But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have my harem and my does. Right. Yeah, that's a uh, another interesting thing is that uh, I think it's wolves. When they fight, um, eventually the one will roll over and show his neck yeah. to the other one. And typically they let the other one go because that's like you said, that's yielding. Um, it's interesting to think because like the natural course for humanity for centuries has been war and killing. But though, when you get down to like an individual level, 
people don't want to do that. Like that's not, I don't think it's in our nature. I think what happens is is that um, is people tend to get into groups and then a group meets another group. Then, you know, as we've kind of been talking about dehumanization happens, you, you identify them as the out group. And then since you're a part of your own in group, now you don't have to take responsibility for your own individual actions. Therefore, nobody's responsible in this group because you, you know, you're part of a collective now in this given situation. Therefore, it's all right to, you know, kill or do whatever you can um, against the out group. But once again, when it's just you and me, when it's just, you know, even mm. if like we were talking to somebody that's completely politically different than us, um, we would never feel the way that some people do feel about people who disagree with them politically. We would just, you know, carry on normal conversation. But though, you know, you get two giant crowds together, people who are completely on different sides of an issue, then oh, that's kind of where shit hits the fan. Are you sh- are you sure you didn't watch Why Can't Johnny Kill? I don't think I did. Okay. <clears throat> this is uh so Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman might be mm. familiar to you. I don't know if I've talked about this on your show before. I feel like I have. Mm. But he started this uh an advisement group, uh consulting group. He he was um he was an army ranger, right? Mm. He started a consulting group called Killology and Ooh. all these military um Military groups, military contractors, and law enforcement agencies would hire him to come give a speech about killing and performing under under combat situations to all these police departments. So he wrote this book called Killology, or uh, no, um, I forgot what it's called, but he wrote several books about it. The main one is what I'm referring to, and in it he came up with it because he's also a psychologist or something like that came up with this um, thesis that I've been articulating basically that it's either when you, when you're fighting your own kind, it's either fight or flight or submission or posturing. So he adds a, a couple things like that. And posturing would be like firing at the enemy, but not killing the enemy and doing things mm-hmm. like that. And he says that the ways that militaries over the years have enabled the ability of soldiers to kill the enemy is to put them in situations where there's a diffusion of responsibility. One way of doing that would be the crowd mentality, but it's also a team-operated weapon. And um, hold on, I'm getting kind of like an interference. That's all right. You good? I don't know if it's, maybe it's on my end. Um, so essentially you have team operated weapons like cannons and mm-hmm. uh, Gatling guns or, you know, machine guns. But back in ancient times, it was things like the phalanx. Uh, it was a formation where everyone, like, I don't know if you've ever seen 300, the new one, where they would get together and they push with their shields all at the same time. and then Oh, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. It was things like that being tightly in a group. But it was also the the Milgram experiment, having your sergeant standing right next to you, watching you to make sure that you shoot that rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like in Band of Brothers, you know, there's that scene where they're in Normandy and uh, Blythe is the private who has hysterical blindness. But mm-hmm. they get into a battle after Carentan where he won't fire his weapon and he won't fire his weapon. And uh, Sergeant Winters has to stand over him and tell him, Blythe, you shoot that rifle, pour it on him, you know, do it now. And then he does. So those are all things, 
psychologically that can be used to to force men to do these things mm -hmm. yeah i actually yeah i don't think we have talked about that so i'm gonna have to watch that and we'll have to uh kind of do another round on that because that's always been fascinating to me um kind of like we've laid out all throughout the show just the psychology of what makes people do horrible things because i think like the i don't say blue pill but kind of like the initial thought for most people is that oh these are just bad people who have bad intentions but um i, I feel like it's nowhere near that black or white it is people who were just taught to do these things or people in situations where they feel like they have no better option or yeah. like you said the group mentality where um you're a member of your own group therefore everything that your group does is moral everything that the out group does is immoral and of course there is a subset of the human population maybe three percent that are legitimate psychopaths absolutely that, and in having those people in our population is necessary too because you need those people to do things like right. um you know take risks and to protect and be violent um and to essentially be the spearhead of all a lot of innovation and um you know business acumen and, and success and things like that too mm -hmm. so even even there it is nuance but the question with that is okay well what types of positions and situations naturally attract those psychopathic people and i mm -hmm. would posit that power and power politics is a magnet for those types of people mm -hmm. so they're disproportionately represented and, and there's a lot of people who have done a lot of work on this um one of the founding books was um political ponerology it's mm -hmm. a, this is kind of conspiracy like deep conspiracy circles kyle yeah uh political ponerology ponerology is a created word that means the study of evil mm -hmm. um so it was a, a psych psychological a clinical psychological study of evil and psych psychopathy in in politics so i think it's super interesting yeah that's that is interesting. I, I haven't heard of that, and that's kind of surprising. Um, it, it's it's kind of like bodybuilders in a respect, and how this is relevant is that like people who are good at lifting, um, they see a reward from that disproportionately compared to other people. So you know, obviously, you want to keep going back for that reward. If you're good at something, you're going to keep doing that, and eventually, you're going to gross out in just that one thing if you're good at it. Now, if you're not, and you're not getting big returns, then you know, the brain's not going to be that satisfied with not seeing a lot of progress um, when you're doing a lot of work for very, very little return. I just sent you a link to the book. I don't know if you can put it on screen so people can see it's it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Rechtenwald, who people might recognize from the Tom Woods show. Um, I don't know if he's done some work for Mises, too, if he was a freelancer or something like that. Uh -huh. um, you've heard of Michael Rechtenwald, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. There we go. Oh. Yeah. Really interesting book. And I know that James Corbett has uh, has talked about psychopathy and positions of power before. So mm -hmm. I think it's uh, it's really interesting. Yeah, I'll have to uh, check that out. And, and it's, it's interesting because, like, in our political sphere, I know you and I kind of poke fun at the people who always say, oh, they want you dead. But, like, it's not that simple. And I understand why people may say that about communists. But, like, 
there's no real communists in power anymore. Like this is not the overwhelming domineering ideology. Like it's more of one that's like utilitarian as in whatever is going to maintain the party in power's power, they're going to go for that. So like, if I honestly believe that if all the mainstream news, legacy media as it is, um, believed that, uh, let's say Catholicism was like the best way to maintain power and get donations and influence. They would pivot to that in a heartbeat shamelessly. Um, it's not about just their specific ideology. It's about whatever maintains their power and dominance over people. And I think people who, when they just say, Oh, it's the left, it's the left, it's the left. I feel like you're being myopic and you're missing the whole picture when you say it's just one side it's it's the side that's in power and they'll do whatever they can to maintain that power yeah and i have you um i mean that sounds a lot like justin ray bringing it full circle here it sounds a lot like justin ray mondo had an article about what is the libertarian ethos on foreign policy like what is our you know, some people are realists. Some people are neoconservatives. Like, what are we? Uh, because we're not realists. Um, right. And in his theory was kind of taking it apart and seeing that like these these nations and these events that happen in the world are not they're not just well Russia is doing this to Ukraine. There's right. actual people involved. And what are these people's motivations? And largely it is the pursuit of power for their own ends. So any study of foreign policy is going to have to confront that um, and confront the reality of what, who these people are, what their incentives are, and what dynamics do they have, and what are their motivations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know what? Kind of continue on that. Um, I don't think I, we've ever really talked about this, but uh, was Justin Raimondo like a big inspiration for you? I have to imagine being that you're the fellow there. But, you know, what was kind of his impact on you? And I, I really don't even think we talked about your kind of journey to libertarianism ever before, because I think the first time I had you on was with uh, Kyle and uh, Connor. And I can't believe in February, it's going to be two years ago that, that, yeah. that we did that show together. I, I was thinking about that all day. And I'm like, that's <laughs> fucking insane. <laughs> that is crazy, man. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the years just seem to fly by faster yeah. and faster. I think that's mm. part of growing up and getting older um so justin um when justin was alive i didn't really follow his work all that closely um although i mean he for the for people who don't know justin was the he was one of the one of the two co-founders of antiwar.com with his Mm -hmm. good friend eric garris um who's someone eric is very involved in still an anti well i mean he's the boss at antiwar.com but he's very involved on a day-to-day basis with a lot of people that we hang out with kyle Mm -hmm. um and he's their boss so uh but i've i've spoken with eric a few times spoken with him about garrett uh with um about justin and his legacy and what justin might think of me um adopting his name in a way of being you know having a fellowship named after him at, at the libertarian institute and uh i mean uh justin from what i know i never knew him personally um but he could be abrasive he was a bit you know um Mm -hmm. stubborn and bullheaded uh from what i mean scott horton said he was kind of an asshole um (laughs) but i can understand that you know i i mean um 
people people who are very talented and are hyper intelligent tend to be very sure of themselves in a sense, but also mm-hmm. can be abrasive and, and obsessed with being correct. And right. I'm the same way sometimes, I'm sure. Yeah, um, it's it, it, so. it, intelligent people are really, really good at buying their own bullshit because they know they're intelligent. So they they'll build narratives to convince themselves they're correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I in in I'm you know, we're all human, we all have our, our things and our faults. And mm. I think I'm sure that if you ask Justin's partner, he would say that Justin was, you know, a fine person and I loved him. And Eric, you know, Eric loves him and, and loved him and was, you know, they were very close friends and co-workers for a long time. So yeah. but his effect on the movement and I think the joy that you see with when you watch Justin's speeches, the joy and passion for this. I think is apparent and his writing is just, he was a prolific writer. He wrote constantly. He would, he would publish a long full column three, three times a week. And all of it was, he just had this encyclopedic knowledge of an understanding of, of world events and world history and, and, and those types of things. So I think that the reason why I wanted to take his name was because he had passed away um, and I think that it's incredibly important to preserve his legacy and his brand of libertarianism, but also his his views on foreign policy. And I'm, I'm not a robot. I mean, I have my own ideas about things, certainly. But I think that that brand, that, that passionate libertarian ethos, packaging it in, in antiwar.com and its mission, and the mission is to provide a right-wing anti-war take within the within the lineage of the old right through the Rothbardian tradition, but to present it in a way that A, makes it okay for right-wingers to be anti-war, mm-hmm. but B, is in a coalition-building way where we can be leaders in an anti-war movement building these bridges, mm-hmm. but also being some of the best goddamn reporters and op-ed writers out there Right. And leading by providing that coverage, and um, and I think that that's worthy of emulation and worthy of trying to carry on that legacy. So, in in terms of my own history and how I've come to the movement, I um, my parents were Bush conservatives growing up. Um, they were political, not overly political though. Um, hardworking people who had built themselves up from from families that were working class or maybe a little worse. Um, so they always instilled in me a hard work ethic and success and entrepreneurship, which you know I'm I'm my own boss with my own companies, I guess, um, in my own endeavors. But growing up in I always fashioned myself as being someone who cared deeply about the constitution. Um, and I remember when I was in high school, my mom was a lawyer and I asked her, how, how can they, the, the fourth amendment says no search, you know, no unreasonable searches and seizures unless upon probable cause. Mm-hmm. Well, then how can we have OWI checkpoints? Because you're just stopping people for no reason. Right. And uh, she said, well, you know, what they do is it's, it's a balancing test. You know, they, there's certain things that the government can do when they have, X, Y, and Z, and I thought that was fucking bullshit, and that pissed me off. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was that point of being pissed off about things that 
is really the rocket fuel that you need to propel yourself to, you know, you can tell that Scott Horton gets pissed off about shit. You know, he's found, he's found a good balance, I hope, in his life of being fired up and pissed off about stuff and using it as fuel to further his activism and his career. Um, but when I was uh, when I was an undergrad, I was in Young Americans for Liberty. Um, and I came in like in the crater of the Ron Paul 2012 campaign. When it went from hundreds of members at the University of Minnesota to about seven people. And that's when I came in. Right. And so I did a bit of that. Um, I had a Reason Magazine sticker on my laptop. Mm -hmm. And my my roommate, who was actually experienced in like the libertarian scene, he was like... Um, why do you have a Reason Magazine sticker on your laptop? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm a libertarian, man. And he's like, well, they're fucking gay. <laughs> but, he, I mean, he was a lot nicer than to me about, he was actually the first host of, of Liberty Weekly. If you go back in the first, like, 20 episodes, he was the host. And, um, but he he introduced me to Stefan Molyneux, and I was a Ron Paul guy. But, yeah. But Jerry, his name was, he kept asking questions mm. and question they were questions that i couldn't answer like yeah you know if it's if it's not okay for me to do something to you why is it okay if i get together in a group of people called government and do it mm. um and i couldn't answer those questions and it led me down answering those questions led me down a, they planted a splinter in my mind that took months mm -hmm. to work out and when i did bam i mean i was when I read Anatomy of the State for the first time, it like crushed my head into tiny pieces. Mm -hmm. and I, it just floored me. It was a life-changing experience. And um, it sounds weird to talk about because now having been in this scene a few years, I mean, when I say things like that, it sounds cringe to me. Mm -hmm. But that's what happened. Right. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I, I can't believe in you know almost two years we never really covered that. Um yeah, man. Jeez. Yeah, I, my brother kind of introduced me to Stefan Molyneux, and I remember my brother always being, he said he was a liberal, and then the one day he said he was a libertarian. And then uh, I, I was kind of like confused by it. And then he started like passing off Milo Yiannopoulos, and then Stefan Molyneux, Larry Sharp, um, Eric July. And then that was kind of when the gears started turning for me. And I remember just, I would have a long drive out to school. It was like two and a half hours, and I would listen to, um, Stefan Molyneux quite a bit back then. And uh, that's kind of what really got me into libertarianism. It was mainly through like his peaceful parenting stuff and also like his long philosophy calls, which I just found absolutely fascinating. So I, it's kind of like, and I think Justin Raimondo from my reading of it and from what I've heard of other people, it seems like Trump kind of damaged them in a way. Like, yeah, people really latched on to Trump when there was like, I, in 2016, 2015, I understand because he's a new guy on the block. You don't know. And he's saying a lot of the right stuff. Fair enough. But they're like 2018, 2019. By then, you should, you know, the mask was off at that point. You should have known who he was. So I don't know. When I heard Stefan Molyneux, even like after 2020, saying that Trump's an anti-war candidate and people still saying stuff like that, I'm like, Ugh, come on, man. Not, you're just trying to, you're, I don't want to say you're grifting, but you're kind of grifting. Yeah, and I, I think that if I had, I could read a bit more of Justin's work at the time. I remember mm -hmm. I wrote a piece about Justin 
when Trump pulled out of the Iran deal. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a piece about it back in 2016. And I think I quote, I cited Justin about something because I know that Justin was, you know, he was pro Trump kind of at the beginning mm-hmm. and was hopeful and optimistic about Trump. And people knocked him for it. I believe that people took it poorly. Yeah. Um, I could be wrong, but um, that's there's the one person in particular that I'm thinking of, and I think you know who I'm thinking of. Yeah, maybe. But I think that he, I don't know exactly when he got his cancer diagnosis. And maybe there's this thing that people do. And maybe I'm off base with this. But I think there might be this thing that people do when they get towards the end of their lives is that they have to have hope that something is going to change in their lifetime. That, I mean, if I was contemplating the end of my life, I would want, I would want some, some fruit to see some kind of fruit of whatever this experiment is and whatever it is that our effort is. I mean, remember that Justin was, he was a libertarian activist since, I mean, when he was a teenager, he met Ayn Rand and Ayn Rand was impressed with him. Like, so you're talking about a lifetime of activism, you know, lots of it. And I mean, long hours late at night, working your fingers to the bone type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And that that strikes a more personal note than you know that I think uh, people might realize for me personally. But yeah, that's it is kind of crazy to think that somebody like that could have lived their whole life and then not seen really the fruits of their labor. And like, not to say that he didn't do anything, but like, you put all this effort forth, and what ultimately happened? Like, you grew a larger liberty movement, which I'm sure he did. And I know it sounds like I'm dunking on him, but like. You know, I I guess I'm almost questioning our purpose in the liberty movement. It's like, you know, what what's it going to look like? Um, I don't know, man, but, you know, I, I, I'm passionate about these topics and I'm passionate about the way that I feel about them. And I think we have the right ideology, but, you know, I, I also question the effectiveness of it. And it's not something that would ever, I think, shake me from my positions, but I just always kind of ask those questions i know probably you and everybody else in the liberty movement especially after 2020 have probably asked themselves the same question yeah i i mean i'm sure i've expressed some of that to you in dms you know yeah. just the frustration with i mean because at the end of the day it's been seven years of my life putting you know lots hundreds and hundreds of hours into this project and mm. what's it all worth and why are you doing it and that kind of thing but I, I took a hiatus and I just ended up right back here. So there's something about it that I I get, you got to figure out what makes you happy. And I think that if you, you can't qualify your happiness on getting some kind of actual change in the world, I think that, you know, your real happiness and success should be based on not looking at what you haven't done, but looking at what you have done. Mm-hmm. And if, if I'm looking at what I have done, I mean, it's hundreds of episodes, thousands of hours of, I don't know, maybe hundreds of hours of documenting podcasts and meeting wonderful people and actually going places and having hundreds of thousands of people listen to what I say. And maybe I changed, you know, a few thousands of their minds, you know, that would be cool. Um, but at the end of the day, too, you know, I have a successful law practice. I have a wife and three beautiful kids, and 
you know, a beautiful wife as well. I didn't mean to exclude her with that statement, but, <laughs> um, you know, you, ha you have all those things and a wonderful family and that's what should be leading, leading it. Mm -hmm. And if you, you find fulfillment in doing these things, I mean, it's good to move the needle, but you, you can't, it's not based on that per se. Yeah. You know what? I couldn't agree more. And I think about that all the time, especially when people like bust my balls about anything. Um, you know, I've only been doing this now for in October, it'll be two years that I've been podcasting and, um, you know, 228 episodes now. Um, I've had many, many DMS and messages from people telling me like, Hey, they asked me a question. And then a couple weeks later, they come back and say, Oh my God, thank you so much. You've changed my health. Um, Adam, you know, I've, I've quote tweeted him where he's told me, Hey man, I've lost like 50 pounds from your advice. And Crazy. it's just, yeah, shit like that. It, like I can't even fathom it. It's so awesome to see other people do well, especially people that I like. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think that's, we're probably at a good place to cut it off here, but like in that same vein, seeing you do well with your documentary, um, I know you were feeling a little bit of a lull there probably about six months ago or so. Um, I noticed you're putting out more content again, and that makes me really happy because I feel like you should, you do good work. And this is definitely a moment for you that you should celebrate and that I'm very, very happy for you. And I think a lot of the other people are too. And I think it's um, something that you really deserved. Well, thank you, Kyle. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I can't, I cannot tell you how gratifying it is to see those numbers come in and for people to be excited about, about this. And in, in a way I'm like, well, this was always there. You know, this, all this stuff was always there. The content was always there. It, it's just, I guess it's trying and changing and trying and retrying and trial and error until you find the combination that works, I guess. And this combination worked this time. Now, maybe if I make another documentary about a different topic, it might not hit the same, even if it's just as well produced. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess you, you enjoy your time in the sunshine. And if it if you can find a way to bring the, the sunshine come in again, do it. Um, but at this point in time, you know, it's, it's a modest success. I mean, it's got 10,000 downloads or views, which is, you know, some people get 10 times that much in a single episode. But for right. me... You know, it's about five times as much as what I usually get. So maybe a bit more than five. So it's it's nice. And I'm trying to capitalize on the moment because I've gotten hundreds of new email list subscribers. And so I'm I'm just I'm trying to get that and keep it up with it. And maybe I can turn it into like a passive kind of income thing. Um, maybe not quite passive, but to, just to capture that, you know, capture that energy and, and do more. Yeah, dude. Well, like I said, I hope you keep putting stuff out. I want to read uh, Conrail's chat. Never be afraid to ask questions, but uh, never give in to the temptation to believe it's all for nothing. Just meet the person or people where you can and hope to change one soul at a time. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And like I said earlier, whenever I get messages from people looking at me for advice or asking questions, I try not to get prescriptions uh, in like this kind of context, but if it's a one-on-one -on -one thing, then I feel a little bit more comfortable doing that. But um, just to get those messages is just really, really cool. And then, um, you know, obviously for you getting that many new email subscribers, then that many views on the documentary and then kind of doing the little media tour that you've done. I mean, that's just awesome. And like I said, I couldn't be happier for you. And uh, hopefully when uh, number two comes out, 
uh, it's the same deal all over again. We're going to see Pat, um, you back on the Corvette report and, you know, hopefully bigger shows than that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. And I, I just got to put my nose to the grindstone and put out another piece and, and see how it goes. But I think to that end, having, having a product that is special, that gets people excited. I think it gives me a reason to reach out to bigger platforms and sell it. And I think that I've learned from you that I shouldn't be afraid to go to those people saying, look at this cool thing I have, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, dude, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I know I've pitched a ton of ideas to you, but, you know, hopefully, um, you know, you have your ideas of your own that uh, you kind of throw out there into the ether and then yeah. they, you know, turn into more projects like that because I totally think, um, documentaries are your thing but your podcast is awesome as well and i've really enjoyed your podcast in particular um so hopefully you can get on lots of cool guests with this and this is kind of like a yeah. uh, a, a billboard if you will to kind of draw people in your direction so um yeah man if you got any plugs if you don't got anything else let's uh you know let's um cap it there yeah so uh watch the documentary vitaldescent.com forward slash oppenheimer we'll get you right to that documentary you'll get a pop-up to sign up for my email list which is like the main vehicle of my support so if you if you get the pop-up put in your email list um, my membership website is called libertyweekly.club I, I haven't changed the url yet but that is that's the url instead of dot com it's dot club c-l-u-b so sign up there i've been sending out email content every single day and uh, there's a premium level five dollars a month or $55 a year and you get, you know, early access, bonus episodes and uh, members only posts as well. So thanks for having me on Kyle. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Well, uh, as always, um, yeah, it was a good chat and I'm looking forward to doing the next one. And then, you know, we'll, we'll be in touch, man. I, yeah, I don't even know what the hell I'm going on. <laughs> <But> <laughs> no Thank you everybody for uh, listening and checking it out. Uh, make sure you like the video, subscribe, do what you're going to do and make sure you go check out Pat's documentary because it is and freaking tastic and check out all his uh, past ones i think we're gonna be listening to why can't johnny kill tomorrow and uh, i'm gonna have to revisit the uh the stand of the century one just to kind of keep that a little bit fresh in my mind oh yeah <laughs> thanks pat say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill